Hello, welcome to the Water Justice Podcast. Join us as we share stories from various voices responding to water and social justice challenges across the globe. Your hosts, Tim Whiffen and myself, Kat Taylor, acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia on which this podcast has been produced, and we honour their connections to land, sea and community. This episode of the Water Justice Podcast is a collection of interviews surrounding the Australian Groundwater Conference from November of 2022. Kat Taylor, my co-host, attended the conference in Perth and was able to ask some interesting questions of the people involved in the conference to give you some insight of the significant takeaways from this event. The theme of this Groundwater Conference was science, resilience and adaption, and this theme has really resonated with the Australasian region for some time before and after the conference. Groundwater is a significant part of the water justice equation and is globally vital for healthy people and environments. Kat was first able to catch up with Dr Richard Evans. Rick has worked as a hydrogeologist for decades on numerous projects throughout Australasia. Like any industry, hydrogeological misadventures or big expensive mistakes happen. Here, he advocates for hydrogeology professionals to be more open to sharing and learning from failures. So I'm Kat Taylor. We are here at the Australasian Groundwater Conference in 2022. Hi, Kate. Rick, you just gave a really interesting presentation about hydrogeological misadventures. Now, what does that mean? Can well, you give me an example? Well, hydrogeological misadventures are a, a euphemism for when we make errors and mistakes and misunderstandings, when, when sort of things actually fail or when, or a most common case is when we predict something and we get an unexpected outcome. So the unexpected outcome is actually fantastic because we can learn a lot from it. In fact, in, in terms of advancing all the science, we should probably learn more from when we get an unexpected outcome than from when things go exactly as we, as we would hope. Mm. And, and so misadventures is a sort of a vague word which covers a multitude of things. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the positive side of that is the lessons learnt, which is, I think, a really fantastic thing. But of course, the negative side is that it can cost a lot of money. Yeah, well, <laughs> I suppose the key thing is that is the, is the need to learn all the sort of lessons, right? So, when things when things go wrong, people feel embarrassed or, or or want to keep it secret. And so, all I'm doing is trying to encourage people to recognise that that sort of talking about what what went wrong and the lessons to be learned from it doesn't necessarily need to involve exposing exactly what is the project or exactly who the owner of the project is or who pays for it. But, but there isn't any doubt when you think about all the big lessons learned. Many, in, in many cases, the things which have gone wrong around Australia are very expensive errors and which end up costing the environment or governments or agencies or private companies a lot of, a lot of money. So it's in all of our interests to learn all the lessons, basically. And you talked a little bit about honesty, about these, these misadventures and having people share their stories. I mean, what's the way forward? What does it look like for the hydrogeology profession? 
Well, I think a common problem is where we have a bore close to a river and up until relatively recently we were not able to extract water out of the river but we could actually get a groundwater extraction licence out, out of a bore close to a river. And when I say close, I'm just talking about a metre or two away from the, from the edge of the river. Now, this is just a classic example of where surface water groundwater interaction is so important and the policies around surface water groundwater interaction have lagged behind the understanding of the science for a long time and as a result people have been able to extract close close to rivers even though it's been known for a long time that in practice all you are is extracting surface water out of the river even though it's coming out of a bore. Yeah, that's a big problem, although hopefully there's much better incorporation of surface water and groundwater connectivity now because we have these mistakes have become clearer over time yeah sure look yeah. look i think all the yeah. all the sort of state agencies have altered yeah. all their all their all their policies over the last 10 years or so to actually stop this occurring now and so there has been a huge improvement one of the problems is trying to work out how far away from the river do you apply the actual new policies? In other words, are we saying that service water groundwater interaction is only an issue when you are dealing within, say, 100 metres or 200 metres of a river? Whereas in practice, if you're further away than that, you often tend to get a similar impact. It's just that it is a delayed impact. So if you're, say, 200 metres from a river, the actual impact of it being one metre from a river is much the same, but it could be delayed by six months or something like that. And so, so the whole thing is all about just recognising the sort of importance of a delay, that's all. Mm. And is there anything else you want to say? Well, the themes of the conference are adaptation and resilience. Well, there isn't any doubt the a profession is making great strides from a science point of view in terms of understanding these impacts. Now the sort of challenge is applying the science into the sort of policy and management environment, right? And and that challenge to apply it in a in a policy management sense is especially an issue when you're talking about trying to educate a community as to what the science actually means. So a community education is a very important part of the whole thing. Great. Dr. Rick Evans, thanks so much for talking to the Water Justice Podcast. No sweat, thanks. Bye. Kat was also able to grab some time with Dr. Brad Opdyke paleoceanography researcher at Australian National University and a principal investigator in the evolution of Lake George in New South Wales. Armed with the history of Lake George's water flows, Kat was able to ask Brad about the observable impacts of climate change at Lake George. I've been very lucky to grab Dr. Brad Abdike from the Australian National University. Welcome, Brad. Thank you. Yeah, on Monday I gave a presentation about Lake George and we're fortunate to have such a long record because in Australia we don't have a lot of really detailed climate records from terrestrial regions. I mean, I spent time out at sea collecting records that are not quite so detailed, but what's neat about the Lake George record is it gives you detail from 1820 all the way up to now. And the fun thing about that is that we recognize these set blocks of time when it's wet and times when it's dry. And so when Europeans first showed up at Lake George, Lake George was about seven meters deep and then it got dry. That was 1820 and then it got dry in the 1830s. And then it started getting wet again in the 1850s and 1870s. And so you get a record high 
in the early 1870s. And for those people that have been following the flood news recently for the Murray-Darling Basin, 1872 is one of those threshold events in terms of record high flooding that was recorded by Europeans at that time. Mm. So you're saying it's got this really interesting history of highs and lows in the in the lake records. Yeah. But what are you finding out around climate change? You've been looking into that. Yeah, yeah. So what, one of the things I've been looking at is that if you look up to the bomb maps and you'll see, or the bomb data, you'll see just the record of how warm it's been getting in Australia over the past 50 years. And so there's been this, what climatologists are calling the great acceleration of the past 50 years. And one of the questions has been why we haven't seen an impact in rainfall during that time. In fact, it's been all over the place, but if you put a mean in it, it's been relatively steady. So one of the things I did for this paper was was just look at what the impacts of a rising temperature would be on evapotranspiration. So what you can do is, is calculate what the impact is for one degree warming two degrees warming or a degree and a half. And there's been actually already a degree and a half of warming in the area around the ACT. And so that means that to recharge your groundwater, what we found in the past, sort of before this warming interval, if you, if you had more than 650 mils of rain, then you had a shot at, at actually getting some recharge. But after this 50 years has passed and we've had that much warming, what we find is that you probably need about 750 mils of rain to get the same amount of recharge. And so that was, that was the point of the early part of the paper that I gave. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the brief take-home message. And as, of course, as things get warmer, then you'll need more rain mm-hmm. to, to get the same effective rainfall in terms of perhaps getting percolation into the, into the water table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a little bit scary that as climate change is progressing, we're needing more rain to, to sort of do do the same thing in terms of water levels. That's right, um, yeah. And is that true for other areas as well, do you of think? Of course, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I showed you an example from Italy, and I yeah. suppose another point that I tried to get across in the talk was that it's not just temperature, it's, it's wind velocity is also really, really important in terms of changing mm-hmm. evapotranspirations because you get more evaporation the higher the wind speeds are. So you have to keep an eye on that as, as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess this is the Water Justice podcast. So what are your water justice concerns, given what we know about groundwater and climate change? I think all the pushes to get more environmental flows and more water allocated to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities officially would be a really, really terrific thing. And it was encouraging to see talks today and yesterday that, that in fact, there are moves afoot to make that happen. And that's exciting. And yeah. I actually hadn't heard that much about that before that. So that's, that's really nice. Yeah. I think we have to be really, really careful. Yeah. And one of the things that I've learned in terms of my brief groundwater career is that it doesn't recharge that quickly. And the reason why I say you have to be really, really careful is that, for example, around Bungendor in the southern part of south of Lake George, we find that the deep aquifer that some of the developers want to basically build new suburbs and and source it from the deeper aquifers. We did some dating on those those groundwaters and found they were like 18,000 years old. 
So we know they're not being recharged very rapidly. So yes, you could go in and mine that for several decades, but then it would be gone and you'd be high and dry, so mm -hmm. to speak. So there's a place for very careful groundwater work and it's not a, it's not a space that should be rushed, particularly when you're in a isolated basin like that where the groundwater may not come back. <laughs> <laughs> Some good advice there. All right, Dr. Brad Updike, thanks so much for your time. Cheers. Brad mentioned at the end there there were several talks about water justice for First Nations people at the conference. And this aligned with the themes of adaption and resilience. The science on groundwater was woven into efforts to make a more just world for people, for the environment, and for the ways in which they interact with one another. Kat was able to interview another Brad, Associate Professor in the Centre for Applied Water Science at the University of Canberra and Camilleroy man, Brad Mogridge. Kat and Brad had a conversation in front of the Indigenous Groundwater Declaration, which was launched at the conference. So I'm Kat Taylor from the Water Justice Podcast. We're here at the Australasian Groundwater Conference and I'm here with Brad Mogridge. Brad, would you like to introduce yourself and where you're from? Hey Kat, good to see you again. Yeah, Brad Mogridge, I'm a Camilleroy man and, and here as a, I was part of the organising committee for the Australasian Groundwater Conference and it's been a great conference to date. Yeah. It's been really fun, super interesting and one really exciting thing that happened yesterday morning was the launch of this fantastic Indigenous Groundwater Declaration which we are standing right in front of now. But Brad, tell me, what is the declaration? It's it come about because we, we saw that IAH International had a declaration for looking after groundwater. So it was sort of the International Association declaring their interest and their support to look after groundwater better, you know, do a better job. Mm. And I thought, why can't... There's an opportunity for the groundwater profession to commit to Indigenous people and their knowledge, especially around their connections to groundwater. And, yeah, we... Started drafting and we looked closely at the United Nations declarations on the rights of Indigenous people, and that appears in Article One and there's seven articles all up. But yeah, it's it's all about what we wanted to do was get the the groundwater and and industry and government, if the, if they're willing to, it's purely voluntary, to sign up to it and be part of doing better with groundwater, especially with indigenous people. Yeah. yeah, Absolutely. And I think it's a really fantastic declaration. I love that it links in with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and that it finishes off with this intention to work together with Indigenous and Western scientific knowledge. Brad, how do you feel when you see the declaration finished and ready to go? I did have it in my, my plenary speech, but I only had it was, it hadn't been signed yet. So I was still tentative about saying there was a declaration, but the president of the Australian chapter of IAH Australia and also the president of the, the, the Groundwater Conference itself. So we had those two signatures and myself as an Indigenous hydrogeologist was primary and we did it live on an on a iPad and it was really cool. So yeah. it was, and I think we had a breakfast, we had a good crowd, you know, glad you could come along as well and, and be part of it. Yeah, it's something special. Definitely something special. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I felt really privileged to, to be there at that moment. Brad, thanks so much for talking about the Indigenous Groundwater Declaration today. Oh, thanks, Kat. You're listening to the Water Justice Podcast. To stay up to date with the program and other content from the Water Justice Hub, you can follow the Hub on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter or Facebook at Water Justice Hub.
following the excitement of the conference and the groundbreaking Indigenous Groundwater Declaration from the International Association of Hydrogeologists Australia, Kat was able to catch up with Dr Sarah Burke, conference chair and lecturer in the School of Earth Science at the University of Western Australia. Kat was able to debrief the conference with Sarah and talk about the lessons and calls to action that can make the most impact. After the Groundwater Conference, I caught up with Dr Sarah Burke from the University of Western Australia. Hi, Sarah. Hello. How are you? Yeah, look, great. Thanks. And good to talk to you. I just wanted to catch up with you about the Indigenous Groundwater Statement. Can you tell me a little bit about the story behind that? So I'm the Regional Vice President for the Australia Pacific Region for the International Association of Hydrogeologists. And a hydrogeologist is basically a groundwater hydrologist. So it's a charitable organisation that have 4,000 members all around the world. And our mission is really to promote knowledge and skills that are related to groundwater resources and to try and work towards sound use of groundwater resources. So that's the the IAH, I'll call it for shorthand, and that's our mission. And as the regional vice president, who's I'm based in Perth in Western Australia, and I've been lucky enough to do some work with some Aboriginal groups here, and I've become quite aware that we're not we're obviously not the only knowledge holders. Professional hydrogeologists are not the only knowledge holders of things related to groundwater. There are Indigenous peoples around the world that, that have a lot of knowledge and and their own connections and values associated with groundwater. And so for me, I I hope that the declaration is a way for us to acknowledge that, that there are other people that have a similar and overlapping mission to us and that have in fact been carrying out that mission for a very long time. In Australia, Indigenous people have been stewards of groundwater resources for tens of thousands of years. So that's that's really where I was coming from in sort of working with Brad to, to put the declaration together, is really an acknowledgement that we care about this groundwater and Indigenous people also care about this groundwater and have unique and complementary knowledge that we can learn from and that we can hopefully work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in the case of Australia to further our joint cause, which is to protect groundwater-related features and to make sure that use of groundwater is sound. And and also, I think another important element of the declaration is to make sure that issues that are important to Indigenous people are also important to us groundwater professionals in our in our mission. Because here in Australia, only 3% of the population identifies as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, so they're, they're very much in the minority we as kind of academically trained professionals have a certain amount of power and we have a voice that is listened to in a different way. And so I think it's really important that we are open to causes and issues that affect Indigenous people and are willing to champion those causes and issues and lend our expertise and our influence to those issues wherever we can. Hmm. So when hydrogeologists sign up to the declaration, what are they putting their hands up for? And in particular, when non-Indigenous hydrogeologists are signing up for it? Yeah, so it's a declaration for people like myself, really. We're not saying anything on behalf of Indigenous people. We're trying to speak to Indigenous people and and make an acknowledgement of their knowledge and values and a commitment to work with them respectfully into the future. 
So the declaration consists of a preamble and then seven articles. The first one of which refers to some of the text from the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that are relevant to water and science. So if anyone, I guess, reads the, the text of the declaration and feels that it's something that aligns with their values and that they would like to make a statement along those lines of, in, of intention of kind of mutual respect, of valuing Indigenous perspectives, of, of trying to work together in meaningful ways and having that two-way collaboration that's so important so that we can learn from Indigenous people and also help them to upskill. Yeah, have a read of the declaration and if it, and if it resonates with you, which I hope it will, please do, do sign on. We, we had an official signing ceremony during the conference and the reception from people has just been fabulous, which has been really great. So we've had a lot of leaders in industry and research already sign on and support the declaration. So we're really hopeful that it can be the start of something. Obviously, the declaration isn't an end point. We think it's the first declaration of its kind around Indigenous people and groundwater specifically. And we really hope that it can be the starting point for people to have conversations within their organisations to reflect on their individual practice and see if they maybe could improve or be a little bit more meaningful in the way that they're engaging with Indigenous people. It's certainly not binding in any legislative way. It doesn't change your licence to extract groundwater. It doesn't oblige you to do anything if you sign it. But it's really about trying to create a cultural change in a way in that we're wanting to really encourage people to think maybe a little more broadly than you might have, depending on how you've engaged with Indigenous communities and, and to really keep an open mind and an open heart so that we can learn from each other and walk together into a better future. And I think that's one of the things which I found very powerful about the Declaration is it does have this intention to walk together, but it's also grounded in the principles of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So it is a rights-based document. It is a rights-based declaration as well. Sarah, why is it important for your organisation in particular, or why now for this declaration? Why now? That's a good question. Partly I was inspired by the IH recently put forward a separate declaration, the Declaration Around the Value of Groundwater, the Brussels declaration or Brussels Brazil we had a joint conference or joint declaration out of two congresses and I and so I saw that declaration and I thought oh you know that's that's really good that's a good way of kind of raising awareness and then having seen that declaration and then through my own experiences in my work then I thought well I wonder if this is if a declaration might be a way of raising awareness in regards to indigenous people and and groundwater more specifically so that's kind of why I thought of a declaration and then I you know Brad Mogridge obviously fantastic didn't think that sounded like a crazy idea which was great and then yeah then you know we've just brought brought people into the discussion and and drafted some text and we so I was the chair of the Australasian groundwater conference held here in Perth which we were talking to people and recording this podcast at and so we really we had within that we had quite a focus on an indigenous session of talks presented by people that aboriginal people that have come down from the Pilbara or maybe other indigenous people from Pacific Islands or from New Zealand so it was one of the focuses of the conference was to try and make space for 
Indigenous voices to be heard. And so it seemed like a good thing to align with that, to, to see if we could get this declaration in time to, to kind of announce and sign officially at the conference. And luckily for us, we had a lot of really supportive engagement from particularly the Committee on Aboriginal Water Interests. So we, they kindly consulted with us in a very timely fashion. And so we got some great feedback from them on that. And that led to a more explicit inclusion of the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of, Indi- of Indigenous Peoples and the relevant articles from that one, which was great. And, you know, Kelly Jane Wallace, who's the current president of IH Australia, was always really supportive and it just, it all came together. We had, so we had the Indigenous subcommittee for the conference and so we used that as a vehicle to kind of work on drafting it and to engage with people to consult and whatnot. Yeah, and it all just managed to come together just in time for the conference. <laughs> yeah, I was lucky enough to be at the launch and it was a very exciting moment, I think. There was a lot of good energy in the room. In terms of next steps, who would you encourage to look at the declaration and consider signing it? Oh, anybody. Honestly, anybody. Whether you're a junior or whether you're in a leadership position in your organisation, take a look at the declaration and think about how you can incorporate the ideas that are in there into your own practice or use this as a vehicle to push it up the food chain and, and get the if you're not a leader in your organization, get your leaders involved in, in thinking about this space and reflecting on how your organization is operating with Indigenous people. Maybe you have, maybe you're an Indigenous organization. It's certainly, the declaration is written from the perspective of IAH as a predominantly non-Indigenous organisation and we're not trying to speak for Indigenous people. But anybody is welcome to sign on to the declaration. And then I think beyond signing, it's about putting it into practice, really. And that's <laughs> that's the important and the challenging part is let's let's have these discussions as a groundwater community and as, an, as individual organisations and and let's reflect and try and work out how we are engaging with Indigenous people in the groundwater space and issues that are particularly important to Indigenous people. And let's, maybe if we need to, let's slow down and maybe talk to a few more people than we normally would or be a little bit more open and receptive to hearing what people are trying to say to us in this space. Maybe if you've got a project that doesn't have an Indigenous element, maybe think about if it could have an Indigenous element in it and you could work with people in a, in a constructive way. So there's signing the declaration, which is great. Please do sign it. And then there's also putting it into action as individuals, as organisations. So if you're interested in reading the declaration or you're thinking you might want to sign the declaration, you can go to the IH Australia website and there's a news article there with a link or you can just type into your your browser, declaration.iah.org.au. Dr. Sarah Burke, thanks so much for talking with me today. It's been my pleasure. You can find the link that Dr. Sarah Burke mentioned in the episode description, as well as links to our other guests from this episode if you wish to follow any of their outstanding work in the groundwater field. Conferences like this are not broadcast to the public, but the knowledge exchange and commitments to action that take place are very important and quite influential to attendees. We are so pleased to be able to bring you some insight into the conference from the outside and bring to light the amazing work of the people who attended and contributed.
thank you for being part of the conversation on this episode of the Water Justice Podcast. If the ideas of this podcast inspire you, please subscribe and consider sharing. With your help, we can foreground water justice as an urgent policy issue. This podcast is executive produced by Quinton Grafton, the convener of the Water Justice Hub at the Crawford School of Public Policy, the Australian National University. The podcast is a platform for truth-telling and justice for all in relation to water. It's hosted by me, Kat Taylor, and Tim Whiffen, and is produced by Tim Whiffen of Whimsy Productions. Thank you to the guests for making this possible.